Those of you who know me are probably aware that not that many years ago I was an exchange student. 1989, which is not that long ago, I headed off to uh, the French province of Canada, Quebec. And um, to that stage in my life, uh, my furthest uh, adventure, my furthest, the extent of my overseas travel was Dunedin, um, which I can tell by the, the excitement you understand is, is not a great adventure. Um, but I was also, I'm the oldest child, so this was a big deal for my family. And we were living in Nelson at the time. I left my teary mother and my brother and sister down there. Dad travelled up to Auckland with me and um, leaves me at the airport. And as I'm just about to board the plane, he felt it was his duty to just impart to me some words of wisdom. And so he puts his arm around me, the eldest child, off to see the world. And he, he wishes me the best and he says, son, just, just mate, remember who you are. And I nodded and I thanked him for that profound wisdom. <laughs> Sprinted off to the plane, thinking, I have gotten absolutely no idea what he was meaning. <laughs> but it's in the 30 years since uh, we had that little profound wisdom discussion, and I think particularly as I've become a father, I think I get what he was meaning. And that I was being sent off out into the world. I was a representative, an exchange student from New Zealand. And as I went out as a young, impressionable teenager, I would go out and he knew I would be influenced by the world that I was going into. And what he was concerned about is that as exciting and influential as the world would be on me, that I would forget the, the roots and the character and the loving family and the amazing Kiwi culture that I came from. And that was his concern. And he wanted to give me a warning in regard to that. And the passage that we're going to look at today in John's Gospel is very similar. Jesus is, is departing. He is about to leave the earth. And he is sending his disciples, his closest followers, out into the world. And he, and, and he gives them a very similar warning as what my dad gave to me. But this morning it's not in a statement to his disciples what we're going to see is the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples with the same message. And I think there's an amazing challenge in this, but there's also a huge encouragement. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, turn it on or open it up, and I'd love you to turn with me to John chapter 17, and we'll read together from verse 6. So for those of you who, who haven't been with us in recent months through our series in John, just to put this in context, if you have a look at John chapter 17, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed. He will be crucified the next day. He's just celebrated this uh, Passover ceremonial meal with his disciples and he's preparing them for his leaving. And in John chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. It's what we call the high priestly prayer. And if you have a look back at, at verse, the heading above verse 1, if you have headings in your Bibles, you'll see it says, Jesus prays for himself. Jump over to verse 20. You might find a heading there, Jesus prays for all believers, those who would believe, based on what the disciples say. But today, if, you look at, if you've got a heading above verse 6, you'll see it says, Jesus prays for his disciples. And that's where we want to head today. 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a, a bit annoying as I read through this. I'm just going to butt into the Lord's words every now and then, and just with a couple of explanations as to what he's getting at, just to make it clearer for us. But if we can read together from verse 6 of John chapter 17. So Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says to God the Father, he says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you've given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed and you sent me. This is a right response to God, is to accept and believe what he's telling us and to respond, to act on that. And that's what the disciples had done. Jesus goes on in verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And when Jesus talks here about the world, what he's doing is he's making a contrast. He's not talking about the physical planet that we live on. He's talking about the population of the people that make up humanity. But what we'll see is going to flesh out a lot later is that when he talks about the world, he's making a contrast. And when he talks about the world here, he's talking about people who either ignore or reject God's call and control. Okay, People who ignore or reject God's call and control in contrast to the disciples who have very, very clearly accepted and responded to God's call and control. There's a big contrast here, and that's important for us to have in our minds when he talks about the world. So he goes on in verse 10, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. It's still talking about the disciples. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but these disciples, they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. So Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And just important for us to understand here, when he says protect them by your name, what's he meaning by that? How do you protect someone by a name? When the Bible, a name is much more than just Steve, the, the label that you recognize me by. A name in the Bible is, is much more about the entire person. And so if you look back in verse 6, what you'll read there, it says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. The literal Greek actually says, I have revealed your name. Because who someone is and their name in the Bible go hand in hand. So when Jesus talks about being protected by the name of God, he's meaning everything that God is. God's greatness and God's goodness, his power and his beauty. So have that in the back of your mind when you read this, that being protected by the name of God. So he goes on in verse 12, While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, Judas Iscariot, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says in verse 13, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that while they are still here, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make holy, and to be holy means to be 
the original root of the word holy means to cut. It means to separate, to set aside from something and towards something else. So when we talk about holy, think about a holy place as a place that's set apart for God. A holy person is someone who is, has set themselves apart and dedicated, devoted, offered themselves to God. And so the Lord says, sanctify them, set them apart from the world to yourself by the, your, by the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Father, I sanctify, I set myself apart and offer myself to you that they too may be truly sanctified. So in a nutshell, if I, if I reduce this right down to one sentence, what, what is Jesus praying? He is praying that God would protect his disciples in the world as people representing him, as people who are set apart and dedicated to him. So the question is then, why do I find this so exciting? Where's the, where's the challenge? Where's the encouragement for us? And I want to start first of all with the challenge, because the challenge is just so important, and you'll see this as we work through. And the challenge comes from this idea when Jesus talks about the world, and this really clear contrast that he makes between the people of the world and God's followers, the disciples. And if you have a look at this, Jesus just highlights this so much. He starts in verse 6, he says, I've revealed you to those whom, I, whom you gave me out of the world. Drop down to verse 9, I pray for them, I am not praying for the world. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Uh, down in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. And so many of you will have heard the expression that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. If you stick around churches long enough, you're bound to hear that. And there are two risks that come out of that, because what, what we're saying here is that on one hand, we are in the world. We are humans, and we laugh, and we eat, and we work, and we have kids, and we grieve, and we doubt, and we question, and we just have to get on with life like all of the other humans around us. We are humans too, and we share humanity with the people of the world. We are humans, and we are in the world with them. But, but as Christians, we are also different. Because like the disciples, when you or I make the decision to entrust ourselves and follow Jesus. It starts with a decision that says, I've been walking through life a certain way, and I've been the one deciding the direction. And it actually hasn't been God who's been at the wheel. And the first step of becoming a Christian is to say, I've been going the wrong way, and I haven't had God in the driver's seat. So I'm going to get in the passenger seat and let him change direction. That is literally what it means to repent. It means a change of direction. But when you do that, not that you are better and able to look down on everyone else, but when you change direction like that and you say, what, well, I'm going to let God take the wheel, your value system starts to change. And things like wealth and, and accumulation start to take a bit of a back seat to an excitement about giving to others who are less fortunate and, and just trying to, to climb the corporate ladder purely for the sake of fame and recognition 
starts losing its gloss and we become more interested as we become more like Jesus in recognizing others. Community becomes more important than selfishness and we become more like Jesus. But on an even bigger plane, we start to feel like there is just such a need for God to be recognized and for him to be given gratitude and that he deserves for the whole world to be like this. And what that starts to do is to create a tension because we recognize that the world is still driving with themselves in the driver's seat and God should be in every single driver's seat. And so a tension arises, even some stage, at some stages to the point like Jesus says where I've taken them out of the world, I've given them your word, but the world hates them. There can be even a hostility. And there are two risks that come out of this, and these are the ones that form the challenge. The first risk is that of isolation. That we respond by thinking, oh my word, we are in the world, but not of it. And the way we look at that statement is, we are in the world. Alas, oh no, we better make absolutely sure that we are not of it. And at its extreme, we are just so worried that that the world might... might, um, make us impure, that the world might influence us, that the world might have a negative influence on us, that we don't have any contact with them. And at worst, we become uh, irrelevant and obsolete and just an odd little community, a bit like if you can imagine a Gloria Vale, just tucked away with trying to avoid contact with the world. But that's just exactly what the Lord is telling us not to do. He wants us to engage. When we think about the words that he uses here, that he has sent us out into the world, we are there to be an influence on the world. And one of my favorite pictures that I just love when Jesus talks about this is the idea of salt. He says that we are to be light. Light transforms a room. When it's dark and light turns up, there's a transformation. There's an amazing influence. But I love the idea of salt. And to help you understand this, I want you to perhaps close your eyes and I want you to imagine the most bland, boring, boiled vegetable meal that your grandmother ever foisted on you. Focus, focus hard, and I know it's probably actually not that hard to do. What does salt do to that meal? Lord knows some of those meals are beyond redemption. You know, the texture of of pureed slug is, is, you know, is, is not ideal. But what does salt do to a meal like that? It changes it. It influences it. It has an effect on it. And that's exactly what we are called to do. We are called to be salt in the world. We are called to bring some zest, some flavor. And, and one of the things I love about this church is that there are so many of you who do that. There are so many of you who, who for years since we started, have sought to engage with the world. How many uh, primary school kids are going to turn up at this school tomorrow and at various schools around East Auckland and they're going to play hopscotch because you guys painted squares on their concrete or they're going to play on jungle gyms or they're going to sit on tables and chairs, they're going to walk past painting and gardens and stuff because you guys gave up weekends to go and do that for them. How many hundreds and hundreds of meals have gone out from this church because some of you guys made extra and others of you had the courage to go and grab them and take them out to new mums and and families who were either sick or in financial difficulty? How many hours and hours of, of love and listening 
have been given out since you guys as a church family started off with 40 people at Little Riverina Primary School 14, 15 odd years ago. How many of you are on the boards of trustees? You coach kids in different sports? One of the things I love about this church is that one of our values is that we are a go-and-do church, not just a come-and-see church. We're a church that wants to go and engage, to be salt in the world. That's what we're called to do. We don't want to run the risk of isolation because we're called to be salt. And when I think about salt, you look at the picture there of the salt, salt shaker and you have some bland mashed potatoes sitting there it just does not matter how close to your plate you put the salt shaker. It's not going to make any difference. You've got to tip it out, and the salt has got to get out there and touch the food. We've got to be people who get out there and touch the world around us, just like Jesus physically reached out and touched so many people. This the first part of the challenge comes from the risk of isolation. The second one, then, is the risk at the other end of, of the spectrum of assimilation. And that's that we are so keen to get out there and to reach the world and build relationships and to love them and make sure that they, they are feeling close to us that we become so scared of possibly even offending them that we just quietly blend in. And we never actually end up saying anything, questioning anything, trying to change anything. And we're just wallflowers. And that mission that's given to us to go out there and transform and influence the world becomes just a mission where we go out and we just are the world and we're not recognized as anyone different at all. And it's almost like there's a bridge that we are so focused on building that we've, we've landed at their end and, and we're making it beautiful and they, they're welcomed on, but the bridge is just washed out at the other end and we haven't even noticed it. And a bridge that's short on either end is a, a useless bridge fundamentally. The picture that I love to have in my mind of, of these two extremes, one is, is, is what we call a subculture. So again, picture Gloria Vale. A subculture, just disconnected, odd, even irrelevant. On the other hand, assimilation is where we just blend into the culture and we actually look no different. And, and so we don't have an influence. And both of those are wrong. And so my question is, what, what do you call it when you're in the middle? What are we meant to be? We're meant to be a counterculture. So we're engaged, but we make a difference. We're engaged and we're different. And the picture that I love when I ask myself, how do, we, how do you explain this? How do you get this across? Is something that Simon Greening said last week when he was here. And he talked, and he, he said it was almost an oxymoron, but he talked as a lawyer about, about organizing a conference and the title of the conference was Lawyers as Ambassadors for Christ. And I just love that. Lawyers as Ambassadors for Christ. Think about that, the idea of what an ambassador does. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. Now, I want to give you a situation. I want to imagine that we are giving you the role of being an ambassador to Mexico. We are sending you to Mexico. You are going to be New Zealand's ambassador to Mexico. We're going to give you a consulate building up there, give you anything you need. You are our ambassador. What will we expect from you when you get to Mexico? 
we will expect you to leave the consulate building and go and engage with the Mexicans. We will expect you to learn Spanish. Go out there, eat tacos. Brad Carr, if you are listening, make friends with baked beans. You will do what the Mexicans do. You will engage with them. You'll interact. If you must, you will enjoy a corona. I'm sorry, but it's part of the job. You will go out there. You will, I don't know, wear a sombrero. Enjoy soccer. But you will enjoy soccer. Go to the bullfighting. Do what it takes to engage with them. But like my dad said to me before he put me on the plane, don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are over there as an ambassador for New Zealand. Because on one hand, if we go over and we don't engage with the Mexicans, if we don't get into their lives and interact with them, we cannot be an ambassador to them. But if we forget who we are and we lose our Kiwi identity, we cannot be ambassadors for New Zealand. We've got to be connected at both ends. And so I love that picture of being an ambassador. And Paul says, guys, we are ambassadors for Christ. Simon Greening's running a conference, asking the question, what does it mean to be an, a lawyer as an ambassador for Christ? Ask myself, what does it mean to be an accountant as an ambassador for Christ? What does it mean to, to be a, a teacher? Salesperson, retiree, at-home mum, engineer, quantity surveyor. What does it mean in your role in life as a neighbour, as a, a coach, a board of trustee member, to be an ambassador for Christ, to reflect him, to, to shine his love, to pass on his truth, connecting the people that you have contact with ultimately back into him? What does that look like? question that I find helpful in this is to ask perhaps which of the two risks do I struggle the most with? If it's isolation, ask myself just some questions that would help me connect. Do I know the names of the people that I work with? Do I know their names? Do I recognise them all? And do I know their partners' names, their kids' names? Now, I'm not trying to just foist a whole lot of work on you, especially if you work at like Spark or Fletcher's or something, you know, but, but the people that you rub shoulders with each day, do, you, do, you know, do they know that we care about them because we've taken an active interest in them? And do they feel safe enough for us when we might then probe with some deeper questions to share things that are a bit deeper than family and fishing? Do they feel cared for by us? Are we seeking to engage with them? And perhaps if, if the issue is, is more on the other end of, of the spectrum, that we think our risk is assimilation, that we're just blending in, how much are we praying for those people? How much, if, if Jesus says that we need to be sanctified by the word, which is truth, how much are we coming back and just plugging ourselves into the Bible, just at, at a minimum, reading the Gospels, just reminding ourselves whose we are. Reminding ourselves, what, what was Jesus like? That's right. He was the most incredible, brilliant, beautiful person. He was God as a man come to us. Are we plugging ourselves into this? Are we looking to have the courage to ask some deeper questions with the people that we are rubbing shoulders with? 
Are we looking to sow seeds with them, leave stones in their shoes? Uh, do they know we're Christians? Have we ever shared what, it, what we've done, that we changed direction, that we kind of got out of the driver's seat and our life is different? And this is not to put guilt on anyone. This is just to say this is what we are called to do. We are called to be people of conviction clothed with compassion. And as someone who comes from a family way outside of church, can I just assure you, if this just scares the pants off you, that it's not the whole world that hates you. There are some people out there who are just quite anti-Christian. Often that's a face. And there are so many people out there like, like Trish, whereas Trish, who just shared so beautifully this morning, who look at us and they see some of the peace and the purpose and the hope that we have. And the world wants that because Jesus in us is a beautiful thing. And there are people who are interested in hearing the message that you have to give and who will engage and who will accept and who will respond because it's not just you who's doing it. God is calling them as well. As we are going out as his ambassadors, he is the one who is actually doing the work. So that's the, the initial challenge for us. And the way I love to think about this, that we recognize this as a real challenge, is if we change some of Jesus' wording and change this from being a prayer on our behalf to a statement to us. Because he, the same care he has for his disciples, he has for us. The same mission he gave them, he has for us. And so if we just change his words from being in the third person to talking to us, what would it sound like? Rather than praying to God, he would turn around and he would look at us and he would say this, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that you may have the full measure of my joy within you. I've given you my Father's word and the world has hated you for you are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that my Father takes you out of the world, but that he protects you from the evil one. You are not of the world, even as I am not of it. I want you to be set apart from the world and to my Father by the truth. His word is truth. He sent me into the world. I, as he sent me into the world, I am sending you into the world. And when we rephrase it like that, can you start to see the challenge that Jesus puts out to us to be his ambassadors to reach the world around us? That's why I get this idea of such an immense challenge, such a privilege and responsibility that we have. But as well as being a huge challenge to us, Jesus' prayer also comes with two amazing pieces of encouragement. And the first one is the emphasis that he gives us on this being true. If you look back at verses 6 and the early verses, you'll see there's so much flavor of the disciples' understanding and certainty. He says, Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And this is where, unlike some of the other major world religions or worldviews, Christianity is based on historical truth. It all comes down to things that are testable 
true statements, evidenced true statements. Did the resurrection of Jesus happen or not in real-time history? And we're not talking just a spiritual, I feel like he's with me, so he must be risen. Jesus' body walked away from the tomb. Christianity, what we're asking people to believe is based on testable truth. And so when they come to us looking for genuine hope that stands in the face of, of real questions of life, of deep questions, our faith stands. Our faith stands up to scrutiny. Our faith is, is ready to deal with answers. And our faith has a foundation that you can genuinely stand on. Which is why, if you go over a couple of chapters, John says the purpose of this whole book that I'm writing to you he said Jesus performed many other signs, evidences in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. There's just too many. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is about truth. It's not about just some mystical kind of thing, the sound of one hand clapping. It's just it's not bollocks. It's genuine historical reality that you can test and question that will stand up to the, to the questions that the world has. It is based on truth, hence this idea of this is what transforms us. We are transformed by truth. The second part that makes this so encouraging is in verse 19, and it's not straightforward to see, so I'll explain it to you. If you look down at verse 19... You'll see Jesus says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. If you remember I said at the start of the message, what does it mean to sanctify? It means to make holy. And to be holy means to be separated, separated from and devoted to or dedicated to or offered to God. And so when Jesus in this context says, I set myself apart, and I offer myself to God, what, is, what night in Jesus' life is this? It's the night he is betrayed, the night before he is crucified. And what makes this so amazing is that there's a promise made to every single human in history that if you respond rightly to God, if you accept what he offers and you respond to him rightly, if you, if you take him at his word and obey him, he will accept you. No list of rituals, list of good things you have to do. Just respond to God, he will accept and welcome you. That applies to every man, woman and child except for one person. It's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus had a deal with his father where the father said, if you respond rightly to me. If you do everything I ask of you, I will reject you and I will punish you and I will crush you on behalf of all of the people you are going to save. And if you think that that sounds exaggerated, I want you to have a look at some words that Isaiah the prophet wrote describing Jesus' death. Isaiah describes Jesus' death in this way. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus the punishment that we all deserve. And so when Jesus says, I set myself apart and offer myself to you, he's talking about the cross. Most commentators say that's exactly what Jesus is meaning here. So that his followers, they too may be truly set apart and dedicated to God, but without having to be punished and sacrificed. And because this is so, so important, the fact that Jesus would do that for us, that he would take our punishment, that he would then be able to exchange his perfect righteousness for our wrongdoing, our lack of righteousness, for the fact that we spent so long driving without him being at the wheel. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is the offer that he gives us. And this is so important that on this night, Jesus put in place a little habit, a little ceremony that that we're going to uh, do it and we're going to perform in a few minutes. But what Jesus is saying is, is look, this is, this is something I've done for you that you have to depend on. I love the way that when Paul describes this, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says this, describing the ceremony of when we have the bread and the wine. He says, on the night when Judas betrayed him, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new agreement between God and you that has been established and set in motion by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the message of the Lord's death, that he has died for you. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. Buddhism does not depend on the death of Buddha. Islam does not depend on the death of Muhammad. We depend on the death of Jesus because he said, when I do that, I'm going to take my punishment, I'm going to take your punishment on myself. I don't deserve it, but my deal with God is that I am happy to do that. So that the perfect justice of God, the justice that we want to be done, we want the perfect judge to punish all wrongdoing, we just don't want to take it ourselves. So God's perfect justice is fulfilled. But his perfect love and his desire to accept and welcome us can also be fulfilled. And all we've got to do is entrust ourselves to what Jesus has done for us. All we've got to do is is say, I really like the sound of that offer. And so I'm going to accept it. Lord Jesus, I love what you've done for me. And I need it. And I want it. Can I just ask, because a lot of you have been coming to church for a long time. Some of you are visitors. Some of you might, it might be the first time you've ever heard this. And it is off the charts weird. And I can totally understand that because I've, I've sat in your seat and I've heard it and it sounds weird. But it is true 
And it is the most amazing thing because it means that you don't have to climb your way to earn God's acceptance. You don't have to work your way up any ladder or or tick off a whole lot of good things or religious rituals. This is what makes Christianity a free gift. And if God is prompting you now saying, you need to respond to this, you need to accept this, if there's that voice in your head saying, you need to do something about this, I want to just give you an example prayer. These are not magic words. These are just example words that I think express what it means to accept that gift that we're offered, to entrust ourselves to Jesus. And can I just so encourage you, if, if these words express what you're thinking right now, if these words express, or even something like this, express your desire to say, yeah, I love the thought, of handing my life over to Jesus. I love the thought of being accepted and embraced by him. Can I just ask that as I I pray this now, we're just going to close our eyes and pray this, that you just pray this and use these as an expression of your heart to God and let him know that you want to accept the offer he's making. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you gave me life, but I don't live for you as I should. I've turned my back on you and I've lived for myself. Thank you for taking my punishment when you died on the cross. Please forgive me and help me to live with you. I entrust myself to you. And can I just ask if, if you have, if, if that really is a reflection of your heart, if you've genuinely prayed that now, can I please, please ask you, let someone know the personal people you came with, Uh, I would love to hear it. If if that's easier, there will be staff or leaders down the front here. Not that we're going to make you stand up and tell the world, but it's just something that we would love to celebrate. We would love to hear that. We'd love to answer any questions that you may have. Love to talk to you about what it might look like in the years ahead as you now start to walk with Jesus. For all of us now, though, uh, we're going to ask the band to come up now. And we're going to do the little ritual that Jesus asked us to do to help us retell uh, what he's done for us, that we might be accepted by him. And can I just ask that as we do this, as we take the bread that, that represents his body that he handed over, that, that we, as we take the cup that re- represents his blood that he was prepared to shed for us, just come up and grab it any time you're ready as the band's playing. Just go back to your seat and just whenever you're ready, just before you take it, can I just ask that you just stop and reflect. Just think about what it must have been like when Jesus sat in that upper room and handed this out to a bunch of scared young men, just giving it to them as a reminder of what he was about to do. Just contemplate that before you take it and then just give him thanks for what he's done. Because whenever we do this, we retell that. And just in the context of what we've read today, it just reminds us of the certainty of our welcome. We've been given this huge challenge. As great as our challenge is, as Christ's ambassadors to the world, greater is our certainty of his welcome home. And it's because of what he did for us on the cross. So as you take this, can I encourage you, just stop and reflect on that and remember it.